open your Bibles to Ezekiel 38. We're going to learn about being in the fight place at the right time tonight. Yes, absolutely. Thank you, sister. Amen to you. God bless you. Let's just read the first eight verses to restore our context. Now, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. Prophesy against him and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. I will turn you around, put hooks into your jaws, and lead you out with all your army, horses and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya are with them, all of them with shield and helmet. Gomer and all its troops, the house of Togarma from the far north, and all its troops, many people are with you. Prepare yourself and be ready, you and all your companies that are gathered about you, and be a guard for them. After many days you will be visited. In the latter years you will come into the land of those brought back from the sword and gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate. They were brought out of the nations, and now all of them dwell safely. Prophecy expert Mark Hitchcock, whose work I recommend, says, and I quote, By far the most controversial issue in Ezekiel 38 and 39 is the timing of the invasion. The specific time of the invasion is difficult to determine. Now, I should explain, we believe that this prophecy is literal and historical, In other words, it describes a real military campaign against Israel that happened sometime in human history. And if you were with us last week, uh, we talked about the nations that are involved, uh, where the peoples that Ezekiel recognized are today in terms of Russia and Turkey and Libya and uh, Iran and all of those different things. Uh, Tonight we're going to talk about when this invasion might take place. Uh, We're going to look at a few theories, but before we do, there's one thing for sure that I think we should keep in mind, and it's something we read in verse 8. Let me just note it again. Let's read verse 8 again. After many days you will be visited, and the latter years you will come into the land of those brought back from the sword and gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate. They were brought out of the nations, and now all of them dwell safely. As we'll see at the end of our study, there are about six key phrases there that give us clues as to when this might take place. But to me, the most important one is the last one where Ezekiel writes, and he says, Now all of them, meaning Israel, that's our context, dwell safely. Now this seems to be telling us that this invasion occurs at a time when the nation of Israel is dwelling safely in their land. It's going to be for us a kind of litmus test to tell us when this might occur. Because whenever it occurs, it has to agree with this statement that Israel is dwelling safely in their land. Now, the meaning of safely is therefore important to our discussion. It means security or confidence. It's similar to our English word trust. Some have tried to equate the notion of living securely with living in peace. It's said that what is described in this passage is a situation where Israel is at peace with all their neighbors and no one is a threat to them anymore. But that's not really supported by the word or the context. The idea is that that they are confident 
trusting in something or someone for their security. With that in mind, let's see when this invasion might occur. Believe it or not, there are those who say it has already happened. They say it was fulfilled in the time of Esther around 473 B.C., a little over a hundred years after Ezekiel wrote. You remember the story, Ahasuerus was king of the Persian Empire. Esther, a Jew, came to be his queen. It was providential because just at that time, Haman convinced the king to issue an edict allowing the population to rise up against the Jews and destroy them. It's Esther 3.13 where we read, Letters were sent by couriers into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions. Now Esther had concealed her Jewish heritage, but now revealed herself to the king as a Jew. Ahasuerus then issued a second edict, allowing the Jews to defend themselves. Here's a passage from Esther that describes that, beginning in chapter 9, verse 1. Now in the twelfth month, that is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day, the time came for the king's command and his decree to be executed. On the day that the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, the opposite occurred, in that the Jews themselves overpowered those who hated them. The Jews gathered together in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could withstand them because fear of them fell upon all the people and all the officials of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and all those doing the king's work helped the Jews because the fear of Mordecai fell upon them. For Mordecai was great in the king's palace and his fame spread throughout all the provinces for in this man Mordecai became increasingly prominent. Thus the Jews defeated all their enemies with the stroke of the sword, with slaughter and destruction and did what they pleased with those who hated them. Now, having read Ezekiel chapter 38, just into verses 1 through 8, can you see anything similar at all going on in the time of Esther? Well, you can't, except for the fact that it involves the Jews fighting with Persians. Uh, None of these other nations are involved. None of these other people groups are involved. There's no Gog, Prince of... Uh, you know, Gog of Magog, Prince of Rosh, and all of that. And besides, Israel was not dwelling safely in their land in the 5th century B.C. They were subject to the Persian Empire. No one in the book of Esther so much as mentions Ezekiel or his prophecy, even though it was only about a 100 years earlier. An important Jewish holiday developed out of the Esther event called Purim. This is a joyous annual holiday celebrating God's deliverance from the hand of Israel's enemies. Purim celebrations include the public reading of the book of Esther, but no tradition has ever developed or ever been heard of in which the Jews read Ezekiel 38 and 39 in connection with this observance. And no Jewish scholars have ever connected Esther with Ezekiel. There's no other time in history between the prophecy and today that we see a fulfillment. And so Esther... This battle between the Jews and the Persians who hated them in the time of Ahasuerus is not the fulfillment, obviously, of Ezekiel 38 and 39. And as we survey recorded history, we see nothing like this in our past. And so we believe that this prophecy, uh, if it's to be taken literally, which it is, it must be 
future uh, even to us because it hasn't happened yet. And so let's talk about when this invasion might take place in the future. Well, there are those who say it could occur any time during the current church age prior to the resurrection and rapture of the church. One of the verses they cite, Ezekiel 39.9, which describes what happens immediately following the defeat of Gog by God. Verse 9 of Ezekiel 39 says, Then those who dwell in the cities of Israel will go out and set on fire and burn the weapons, both the shields and the bucklers and the bows and the arrows, the javelins and the spears, and they will make fires with them for seven years. And so in the aftermath of this battle, which is really a supernatural destruction of this invading army by God, Jews go out and they gather up the weaponry and they burn them for seven years. Now, this period of time, seven years, coincides nicely with the tribulation on earth. It lasts seven years. And so the argument is that the church is resurrected and raptured just at the time this invasion uh, happens and the tribulation begins. Some of the problems with the timing of this invasion in the church age and prior to the tribulation, though, are the following. Ezekiel 39.9 doesn't say that the seven years are the seven years of the tribulation. It's an interesting theory, but we we're not told that for sure, as opposed to when you read the Revelation and it goes to great lengths to talk about seven years, three and a half years, a time, time and half a time. And it keeps referring to a very specific period of time. And so we're just told it's going to take seven years. And if this invasion were to occur today, because that's the theory, it's going to occur at or around the time of the rapture, which hasn't taken place yet. Could we say that Israel is dwelling safely? Well, no, I don't think so. Uh, uh, I, I don't think Israel would say that. Uh, they're not dwelling in any kind of real safety. So the next view is that the invasion will happen after the rapture, but before the tribulation. It will be during the interval of days and weeks and months or years between the rapture and the start of the seven-year tribulation. One argument for this view is that it sets the stage for the tribulation. If the tribulation is closely preceded by a failed invasion of Israel, this could remove much of the Russian Muslim influence that we see currently in the Middle East, and it could allow the European Union to fill the void. It would empower the European Union, from which many believe the Antichrist will rise. But I still fail to see how it accounts for the phrase, all of them dwell safely. If the church were raptured today, I don't see how that would result in Israel feeling safer uh, tomorrow. Uh, it just doesn't make any sense. And by the way, what's interesting about this, just as uh, you know, to pause, um, all of us are kind of like armchair quarterbacks in every area of life. Uh, and uh, I mean, maybe it's just me, but we like to look at the way the world seems and, and we think, OK, here's what we think is happening in the Middle East. And, you know, if this happened, we could see that happen. And, and it all. And this is what we used to do years ago when I was first saved. And we would talk about uh, the Soviet Union because the Soviet Union was this big world power. Uh, and 
you know, we kind of, by we, I mean Christians who studied prophecy, you kind of ignored the specifics of the nations that were involved. And you just looked at the Middle East, you thought, well, there's going to be a big invasion from the north. And, and the big giant bear in the north is, is the Soviet Union. And so I can't see how Europe is going to rise to power while the Soviet Union is still a superpower and the Cold War is still on. And so, ah, here's what's going to happen. The Soviet Union is going to come down and try and invade Israel, probably for oil reserves or something like that. Uh, and God is going to supernaturally wipe out the Soviet Union. And then in the aftermath of that, there'll be a void to fill. And so Europe can finally, you know, get its tenth nation and fill the void. And, and everything made perfect sense in your mind. But it just had nothing to do with the Bible. Uh, it, was, it, it made political sense from our understanding of the world. And then all of a sudden you woke up one day and there was no Soviet Union. It was apparent that Gorbachev was not the Antichrist, even though he had a big mark on his head and everybody thought he was. And in some language, his name added up to 666. And, and there was no Soviet Union. It was just gone. And you think, oh, God didn't need to have Russia come down and get nuked, uh, you know, supernaturally. He did this a whole nother way. And then you started to see, oh, maybe these little nations and areas really are just the way Ezekiel said. Maybe it really is Iran and Libya and uh, the Sudan and all these little Muslim countries that are named and parts of Turkey and all that. And so uh, we need to be careful sometimes if we're going to argue for a position if part of our argument is, well, you could see how that could happen today, sure, I guess so, but that, that God could make that all change overnight. And so what we want to do is look at it and say, no, this is what is said. And one of the things I think that really is this, to me anyway, maybe I'm overblowing it, but they have to be dwelling in some kind of safety in order for this battle to take place because Ezekiel says that is a key feature. Now, the most widely held historical view, believe it or not, is that the invasion will take place around the middle of the seven-year tribulation. There are at least two major reasons for the popularity of this view. First, the tribulation begins when the Antichrist enters into what? A peace agreement with Israel guaranteeing her what? Safety and giving her the ability to rebuild her temple. This seems to account to me very well for this phrase, all of them dwell safely. It doesn't mean that Israel doesn't have any problems or any enemies, but it does mean they have achieved a relative safety uh, that allows them to rebuild their temple <coughs> and to press on. Now, the mid-trib view also takes into account a parallel passage in Daniel chapter 11. We don't have time to go there, but if you read Daniel 11 you'll see an invasion of Israel from the north. And it seems that when the invasion begins, the man that we know as the Antichrist starts to come to Israel's aid. But as he does so, God supernaturally destroys the, the army from the north. There's no real battle. God just destroys them. This Antichrist and his armies continue into the Middle East anyway. They come to Jerusalem and that is the time when he goes into the temple in all of that confusion and he says, hey, by the way, 
I should have told you this when, when, before you signed. You ever sign a contract and wish you hadn't because there was, a, there was a clause, you know, everything excluded is deemed as included, you know, that kind of a thing. And, and so, uh, it, by the way, that, if you ever see that on a contract, don't sign it. But anyway, uh, and, and he goes into the temple and he says, guess what? Should have told you, I'm God and you're going to worship me. And he defiles the temple that's the abomination that makes desolate that Daniel and Jesus spoke of. And so it fits in nicely with exactly what we're reading here uh, at this mid-tribulation time. <clears throat> and that event, that is the middle of the tribulation. Everybody agrees with that. Everybody who takes prophecy literally says, yeah, Jesus said it, Daniel said it. When the Antichrist comes into the temple and declares himself God, it's been th- he's, he started a peace treaty three and a half years into it. He does that. Three and a half years later, that's all she wrote. Now, the major argument against the mid-trib view is that the peace treaty with the Antichrist doesn't really render Israel secure. But I'd say that it does allow them to dwell safely for a time. Ezekiel doesn't say all their troubles are over or that there's no longer any danger. Uh, it, it quite obviously is a security agreement. It's a, it, it's a defense agreement. He agrees to come to their aid. In fact, it seems to me that the peace treaty with the Antichrist is the perfect explanation of dwell safely. After all, in 1 Thessalonians 5, we read that it is precisely what? When people are saying peace and safety, that sudden destruction comes upon them like labor pains on a pregnant woman. And so they think, well, now we're in relative peace and safety, but God says, well, no, not really, because the worst is now coming. And so, uh, to me, this is the best biblical explanation. Now, let's keep looking, though, at some other suggested times for this invasion. Uh, Some believe that this invasion, Ezekiel 38 and 39, is synonymous with what the book of Revelation calls the Battle of Armageddon. A lot of people believe this, that it's, it's the Battle of Armageddon. Since Armageddon is a huge invasion of Israel just prior to the second coming of Jesus to earth, and the invasion of Israel described in Ezekiel is said to be in the latter years and in the last days then they argue that this could be the same event. If it is synonymous with Armageddon, Israel is still not dwelling safely. They're anything but when all the armies of the world are gathered together in the valley of Megiddo. It's not a safe time. It's the worst, most awful period of anti-Semitism and persecution against Israel that has ever been recorded. And besides, the nations involved at Armageddon are called the kings of the earth and of the whole world. That's from Revelation 16. It's not confined to those specifically and meticulously listed by the prophet in our passage. He, he says all these specific people and other people with them, but certainly you don't get the sense from Ezekiel 38 and 39 that this is all the armies of the known world coming to battle against one another. The armies of Armageddon will fill the land of Israel and reach Jerusalem, according to Zechariah 14, and the valley of Jehoshaphat, in term, uh, in ter- in, uh, we're told in Joel, whereas the Russian Muslim army of Ezekiel 38 and 39 is destroyed, it says, on the mountains of Israel, Ezekiel 39.4. There's nothing to indicate they get anywhere near Jerusalem. The nations who invade Israel in Ezekiel are said to be destroyed by pestilence, bloodshed, flooding rain, great hailstones, fire, and brimstone. That's in chapter 38, verse 22. At Armageddon, they're destroyed by the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's the brightness of His coming. 
that destroys them. A similar but slightly different view is that the invasion occurs after the second coming during an interlude between the tribulation and the start of the millennium. Now, if you read the book of Daniel, chapter 12, you find out that there is indeed an interlude, a period of time between the second coming of the Lord, the end of the tribulation, and the beginning of the millennial kingdom. There's an additional period of days. I think he mentioned 75 days. We believe that it's going to be the time when Jesus will be judging the nations. Matthew 24 and 25, and at the end, Jesus judges the nations. It's the famous sheep and goat judgment. And we know from listening to Jacob tonight, he doesn't mean livestock. He's talking about uh, human beings who are some like sheep who have heard the Lord's voice and will enter into the kingdom and others like goats who have not heard the Lord's voice, who have rejected the Lord and will be cast aside uh, awaiting final judgment. Uh, It doesn't seem that during that time there's going to be any possibility of any coalition to come against Israel. Uh, it's, It's just a time, it's a mopping up time. The Lord's come back, he's wiped out that army already, and, and I mean, he's wiped out all the significant armies of the world, uh, and so it's certainly not a time when there's going to be another rebellion against him. So it really can't fit into that time. Now, the last major view of when this battle takes place is that it occurs at the end of the millennium. Now, I know I'm throwing around a lot of words, and people, maybe if you haven't studied Bible prophecy it it can be hard to follow. So let me just give you, I should have done this at the beginning, but let me give you a brief outline. We are live right now, amen? I am anyway, and and some of you are. Uh, We're alive right now, we're Christians. We call this roughly and loosely the church age. God is calling out a people to himself from all nations, peoples, tongues, and tribes. Uh, You get saved by trusting in Jesus Christ. You're born again of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and resides within you. We are the church universal from the day of Pentecost until the event we call the rapture of the church. I always say now the resurrection and rapture of the church because when Jesus comes back to rapture the church, to take us home, he will first resurrect those who have died before us, believers of the church age, and then he will rapture living believers. Somewhere after that, we we don't know when, but at some point after that, the Great Tribulation begins. It is a very specific seven-year period of time spoken of in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. It's called also the time of Jacob's trouble because it's about God getting back to work with Israel and finishing his promises to Israel and bringing all Israel to salvation. We call it the tribulation or the great tribulation. Some people call just the last three and a half years the great tribulation because the first three and a half years are relatively peaceful. The Antichrist enters into a peace treaty with Israel. That's how you know who he is. He gives himself away to people who are reading the Bible. And he guarantees their safety. Uh, And for three and a half years, there's things going on. It's not a good time on the earth. But... Israel is dwelling in relative safety. They rebuild their temple. They reinstitute sacrifice. Right in the middle of that, he does what we talked about earlier, declares himself God. Jesus said, if you're in Israel and you're a Jew at that time, get out of Dodge. Get it, leave everything behind. Don't take a suitcase. Get out of there. Run to the hills because the greatest, most terrible time of persecution against the Jews ever known is going to begin. The next three and a half years... 
pretty brutal. Uh, as God is judging the world as the Antichrist, now filled with the devil, possessed by the devil, is going about. There's battles and wars. and I mean, it's awful. It's, it's Revelation 6 through 19. Jesus said, if I didn't come back exactly when I come back, no one would even live through that period of time. But at the end of the seven years, the second coming of Jesus Christ, He comes from heaven, we come with Him, 10,000 times 10,000 of His angels come with Him. He easily puts down what's going on on the earth. Then there's this judgment because He has to, get, he has to judge between believers and non-believers who are still alive in their physical human bodies. Non-believers are sent to Hades to await final punishment. Believers, those who trusted in Christ, including Jews, still in their physical bodies, no one's resurrected, no one's glorified at that time, um, they go into this period of time called the Millennial Kingdom. Millennium means milliannum, thousand years in Latin. It lasts for a thousand years where Jesus is ruling and reigning. The earth, the literal earth we're standing on, is restored. There will be streams in the desert. That's the time when animals are going to be cool, you know, when you can hang out with lions and, and put your hand... Why you want to put your hand in an adder's den, I don't know, but you can do that. You know, your kids can play out. Oh, what's that? That's oh, a cougar. Oh, what a cute... It's, it's Charlie, the lonesome cougar. You know, he came to play in our backyard and stuff. By the way, I don't want to alarm you, and you'll have to remind me where I am in this timeline, but animals are taking over a lot of major cities. Do you know that? In India, I have to tell you this, I saw this on TV and I know it's true. In India, in India, there are, there are, is a monkey, is it a herd of monkeys? A pack, a pack of, a troop, a bunch of monkeys, bunches of monkeys <laughs> who hang around together are all over the cities and because they're revered as objects of worship, nobody's killing them. Uh, 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 one of the mayors of a major city in India a few years ago was attacked by monkeys on his veranda and jumped to his death rather than have his face pulled off by monkeys. And I mean, it's crazy. Chicago, Illinois has a coyote problem in the city. And they patrol all the time. And, and you're walking along in Chicago and three feet over here in a bush is a coyote, a pack of coyote. It's terrible. And so I'm, you know, just... I don't know what's happening in Hanford, but arm yourself. <laughs> so anyway, millennium. Lots of fun things. You won't have to worry about animals attacking you and, and everything will be peaceful and wonderful. You and I will be there in our glorified bodies, having been raised from the dead or raptured. Uh, and, and that's going to be happening. End of that period of time, God lets Satan out of the abyss. He's been incarcerated for a thousand years. Uh, there's no rehabilitation, you know, he's not in the California Department of Rehabilitation or anything like that. He leads a final rebellion of people from all over the planet who still reject Jesus Christ's love for them, even though they see him face to face and we're there in glorified bodies and, and all of this. Final rebellion is put down, great white throne judgment, all unbelievers from all of time are raised from the dead, they're consigned to the lake of fire, which is hell, and then is the creation of the new heaven and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness, and you go on into Revelation uh, 21 and 22. So that's the timeline, that's the literal timeline. And so this position, now getting back into this, is that 
Ezekiel 38 and 39 is this battle at the end of the millennium when all these nations come against Israel. Now, the basis for this view makes a little bit of sense because in Revelation 20, verses 7 through 9, it does speak of a conflict at the end of the millennium. And the strength of the view is that Gog and Magog are specifically mentioned in the text. And you think, oh, where have I read that before? Well, I read that in Ezekiel, so maybe these are the same guys. Problem is that the last battle at the end of the millennium involves, again, nations and people from every part of the globe, not just those of uh, north of Israel and in northern Africa. Revelation 20, verse 8. The devil will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Now, remember here, Gog is a title. We saw that last week. It's like Pharaoh or Czar. It doesn't mean it's the same guy. It isn't a proper name. It's not like saying Gene went out you know, and did this. And even if it would, it could be a different Gene. But this in particular, this is just Gog. This is like saying Pharaoh, uh, you know, whoever was the leader of these people. Uh, it doesn't mean it's the same guy. And again... Uh, it doesn't make sense because it, it involves the entire planet, not just the nations that Ezekiel had mentioned. After everything is considered, the mid-trib invasion seems the most likely, the most biblical timing for this invasion. I therefore don't expect to see it happen anymore. The church will have been resurrected and raptured by that time at least three and a half years prior to that. Now back into Revelation or Ezekiel 38.8 for just a minute. Let's read that one more time. It says, After many days you'll be visited in the latter years. You'll come into the land of those brought back from the sword and gathered uh, from many people on the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate, and they were brought out of the nations, and now all of them dwell safely. As I said at the beginning, there are six at least descriptive phrases regarding the timing of this invasion. They're not all as specific as the final one, but let's look at what they say. It says, number one, after many days... And that can actually mean any length of time. By itself, the phrase is no real help to us. But in the overall context, it can certainly mean the end of days, the last time, not the future generally, but the final future, the messianic time of the completing of the kingdom of God. It, I'm not saying it absolutely means that, but it, it could mean that. Second, he says, those brought back from the sword, that describes a people who were forcibly removed from their homeland only to be brought back. The chapters prior to chapter 38 and 39 have been all about God bringing the Jews back to their land. This is certainly a description of the Jews of the nation of Israel. One author commented, and I quote, The Jews are said to be the only group of people in the known history of the world who were removed from their homeland, dispersed among most of the nations of the world, and returned to their original homeland. And so we would say that this is certainly talking about the Jews for many reasons. Third, it says that they are gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel. That points beyond the Babylonian captivity to the dispersion of Israel in all the world, which did not take place till the second destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. These returnees will come to the mountains of Israel. Jerusalem is a city set within the mountains of Israel. 
The fourth phrase, which had long been desolate, again points to something much worse than the Babylonian captivity that the Jews of Ezekiel's time were experiencing. We can look back on recorded history and see that the long desolation only recently ended in this century when Israel became a nation again. Five, they were brought out of the nations is written in a grammar that indicates God brought them back. And so this can only refer to the miracle of the rebirth of the nation of Israel in the last days uh, in which we live. And then that brings us to the sixth phrase, the one we've been using prominently, all of them dwell safely. Israel therefore, or excuse me, Ezekiel foresaw Israel dispersed throughout the nations of the world, miraculously regathered to the land by God in the last days and finally dwelling in safety. And he said, then this is what's going to happen. There's going to be this invasion from the north and God is going to show himself strong on behalf of his people. Now I'm saying all this is in place except the dwelling safely and that that's going to occur once Israel and the Antichrist enter into a treaty guaranteeing her safety. Keep looking up. Amen? Amen.